I'm Dana Lloyd. Welcome to Soul Sister Conversations, the podcast, where you will be inspired and empowered to connect more deeply with your authentic self as we explore topics of personal development, leadership, and spirituality. Your journey to your most authentic self starts right now. Want to be a better leader? Today's episode is all about getting exceptional results. Mike Abershoff, former U.S. Naval Commanding Officer of the USS Benfold, shares ideas on how he took his ship from the worst ship in the Navy to being the best. I love a good turnaround story. We talk about having confidence as a leader, taking command, building trust, leading by example, leaving a legacy to be proud of, and getting out of your own way. Enjoy the conversation and share it with those you know who could use this message of encouragement to impact their life or business. Mike Abershoff, welcome to Soul Sister Conversations. Thanks for having me. Oh, well, I'm delighted to have this conversation. I've been um, a big fan of your book, It's Your Ship, for a long time. I'm a leadership coach. I often recommend it to clients. I refer to it on my email list and because I think it is a timeless classic uh, uh, read and it's injected with lots of humor and stories and, and concrete examples. And um, so your story is at 36, you were selected to be commander of the USS Benfold and were the most junior commanding officer in the Pacific Fleet. And the challenges of this underachieving destroyer were staggering with low morale and the highest turnover rate in the Navy. And few thought the ship could improve, yet 12 months later, it was ranked number one in performance using the same crew. The question is, how did you do it? And of course, you detail that in your book. But I'm curious, um, how did you define leadership when you took over the ship? I know you say in your book that leadership is doing simple things really well. Is that what you believe going in? So um, taking command of the ship was a life-changing experience for me uh, because of the awesome responsibility involved. And uh, at the change of command ceremony, as my predecessor was leaving the ship for the final time with his parents and his wife and his kids. And as his departure was announced on the public address system, my new crew stood and cheered at the fact that he was leaving. And in my entire career, I had never heard of or seen such a blatant sign of disrespect as what I was witnessing. And, and the first thought that went through my mind was, you know, what do I have to do to keep that from happening to me two years from now when I leave this ship? And the second thought that went through my mind was, you know, I'm not here to be liked. A leader is not here to be liked, but I do have, but I can't do this job on my own and I need a lot of help. And so I realized in that moment that I used to be a my way or the highway type of leader that I was going to have to change if we were going to um, keep our ship safe and keep our, our sailors safe. So I realized in that moment that I had to become a leader and that I had to create a culture where I would want my own son or daughter to come be a part. And sometimes we make culture too darn difficult. To me, it's very simple. Would you want your husband or wife, son or daughter to come work for you and see you in action every day? And if you're proud, you're on the right track. And if you're embarrassed, fix it. And so for me, leadership was fixing all the things that were broken about our culture so that we could engage our people better in order to drive performance and, and keep our ship safe. And were you speaking specifically of the Navy culture or the USS Benfold? Both? To be honest, both. Um, at the time in the uh, Navy culture, 
uh, we had a saying that we like to eat our young. And when I saw um, my predecessor getting cheered off, I said to myself, why do we eat our young? Why are we proud of it? And what's keeping me from changing it? And I realized nothing was keeping me from changing it. So I decided to, to change the culture um, that's been embedded in the uh, ship driving community of the Navy um, and in particular on that ship so that we, so that our people could have a great experience when they come to work every day. And whether they make the Navy a career or get out after four years, that they say, I learned something valuable that I can take with me the rest of my life. So that's what I was, that's what I was shooting for was to have every, give every sailor the opportunity uh, to learn something that they could then use the rest of their life. Hmm. And, and I think that's very um, like the long view of life, because you really talk about really unleashing people's potential, not just in their job, but how it can serve them. And you give lots of examples throughout the book. But I want to talk about confidence of a leader. You say early on in the book, when you took command of the USS Benfold, that you had two courses of action. You could either do nothing and lie low and rock the boat and likely get promoted, or the more dangerous course to your own career would be to shake things up and take risks to get exceptional performance. And you say you suddenly realized you had the power to do this this all along. You just didn't have the self-confidence. Can you speak to what role self-confidence plays in being a leader? I think it's huge. And the way you get that confidence is through validation from somebody you respect and admire. And um, I had a role model at the Pentagon. He was the Secretary of Defense and, and I was his number two assistant. And one day he and the, the senior assistant were talking, who's a three-star, and I was 34 years old at the time. And the secretary of defense said to the three-star, Paul, I consider you and Mike interchangeable now uh, because um, I had studied the role and I was able to anticipate what needed to be done in the office. And so I was being compared to a three-star mm. at 34 years old. And what, what the Secretary of Defense unwittingly gave me that day was validation, which then gave me the confidence to go out and be a better ship captain and to have the confidence to uh, shake things up for the purpose of driving improvement in performance. Mm. And so a lot of times what organizations do is tear people down. Here I had a role model that built me up and it made me feel good and it gave me confidence. And so that's what I tried to do with my officers and my sailors. Instead of tearing them down, look for what they're doing right and build them up and give them that same validation that the Secretary of Defense gave to me so that they can then have the confidence to, to be better performers. Hmm. One thing that stood out to me throughout the book is, I guess you you are uh, you know leaders or learners that you, like you talked about you you and began to anticipate what your boss wanted. You were paying attention. Can you speak a little bit to managing up? Because that's sometimes the uh, things that uh, you know I get questions about. And uh, you say you know if you can if you can save your boss money, that's a universal language. Anticipate what they need. Make them look good. Um, can you speak to how we manage up in an organization? Because you certainly had parameters, you have hierarchy in the Navy, and that's not unlike a lot of bureaucracy in many organizations. So when I worked for the Secretary of Defense, uh, I was not in a leadership role, I was an individual contributor. Mm -hmm. And my job was to push paper all day long. Uh, they gave me a box of yellow highlighters every morning, and every day a four-foot stack of paper would come into the office, 
and I was to highlight what I thought was important for the Secretary of Defense to see. And I would get this four foot stack of paper down to maybe eight or nine inches. And I'd put it in the general's in basket and from my desk, I could watch him work. And at the beginning, he threw 90% of what I thought was important in the trash can for destruction. And that meant I had a 10% effectiveness rating. And the office is so pressure packed and stress filled as you might expect. He didn't have time to train me or coach me. And I was completely demoralized. I wasn't getting any better and I wasn't enjoying the job. And yet I had 26 months left in the role. So I said, you know what, something's got to change. So I decided to train myself to think like my boss. And every night at 8.30 when he went home from work, I would go into his office and take out everything he threw away of mine and compared it to what he sent on. And what I wanted to do was to find out what was important to him so that it could then become important to me. Mm. And I got that eight or nine inches of stuff down to maybe one or two inches. And I'd watch the general work and he would just rubber stamp it and send it right on to the secretary. So I went from like a 10% effectiveness rating to maybe 90 or 95%. And I felt good about myself. I was making a difference. And so I started to continue to play the game that I would observe what, what, was, what was going on. And it taught me how to anticipate what needed to be done. And that enabled me to be there with a solution before the general or the secretary even asked for it. And they started to trust me. And the general started shedding some of his lesser important responsibilities to me, like uh, put me in charge of the SecDef communications team, the trip planning team, the security detail. I had 45 people reporting to me uh, in what was historically an individual contributor role. And he never gave me any feedback, but who I got it from was his wife. And she came into the office one day and she says, I want to thank you for everything you're doing for Paul, because for the first time since he's had this job, he comes home at night happy. And one of the toughest things for leaders and organizations to do is to coach and mentor those next levels and people coming behind them, uh, because it takes a lot of time. And the, the mentees have an obligation not to waste their leader's time. But if they could sit back and learn by watching their leader, how he or she makes decisions um, and what's important to them, and then have it become important to you, that's how you can train yourself to think like your boss and then be able to manage up. Mm -hmm. And so by putting myself in that position to, to think like my boss, I could better manage up so that if there was, if I didn't agree with something, um, I had facts then to state my case. And sometimes I would win and sometimes I would lose, but I considered each a learning experience. And so it enabled me to respectfully uh, manage so that we could do things and implement things in the least disruptive way in, in for my people. And so um, if I wasn't argumentative, I wasn't confrontational, I never took credit for anything. I'm, I always gave credit to the general. And when I got command of the ship, I always gave credit to the admirals. And they became loyal and dedicated and committed to me. And because uh, I wasn't a showboat, I just wanted to get things done the, the best and efficient way possible. 
Um, they take the credit, but then they took care of me later on. And um, when I left the ship, I got promoted to full bird captain four years ahead of my classmates from the Naval Academy because I wasn't a showboat. A showboat. I was just blocking and tackling and executing every day and being very respectful of my chain of command. And they, they rewarded me for it. Hmm. When you take over, uh, when you took over the USS Benfold, as many people do, especially it's an organization that had a lot of things to change, it can be overwhelming on where to begin. Um, and you talk about interviewing all 310 of your crew member to get to know them, because when you know people better, you can lead them better. Was that one of the first things that you did when you um, took over the USS Benfold? Well, um, I... I don't like changing things for the first 30 days because I like to listen mm -hmm. and I like to learn what's working because I don't want to break what's already working. So I, I do kind of listen and learn, but I was having trouble learning uh, the names and faces of every sailor on my ship and it drove me nuts. So that was the original reason why I started the interviews so that I could place a name and a face and a, and a role on the ship. But then I started to get to know them in these interviews and, and learn what their career goals were and learn about their family and what they're, you know, what they're most proud of in their lives. And it was a wonderful experience for me to hear young men and women tell me what their goals are and then to be able to help them chart a course to achieve their goals. And along the way, the crew learned that I actually cared about them. And I like to say that if your people think you care about them, they will follow you into battle. So what was originally a way to um, get to know my sailors so that I could attach a name to a face became something so much more important um, that I also made it safe for sailors, the, the people doing the work on the front line, that if they have ideas how to improve a process or a procedure, that they could raise their hand and tell us about it. Whereas previously there was fear in the organization that nobody, and as a result, nobody went out on a limb and, and went the extra mile and gave recommendations how to improve. They just waited to be told what to do. And, and that's not what I want. I want a culture that's intellectually curious, that's trying to improve just 1% a day and, you know, and, and execute better than anybody else. And if we can do that, you know, we're going to be the leader in our industry. When you began having these conversations with um, your crew, how did that uh, begin to impact the culture from your perspective? So it made it difficult for my officers and chiefs. How so? And, and they resented me talking to their people directly. And it took a month for the command master chief. He's the senior enlisted guy on the ship. Uh, he represents the crew. He finally summons up the courage and came to me and said, your officers and chiefs don't want you talking to their people because what they feared was I would tolerate backstabbing and narking about what went on prior to my arrival. And uh, they feared that it would end their careers. Mm. And so I realized, so William Perry taught me, the Secretary of Defense, that if you don't get the results you're looking for, don't blame others, but instead look inward and ask yourself what you could have done better. Mm -hmm. And what I realized, I'd never communicated to the officers and chiefs what I was trying to accomplish with these interviews. 
And when I realized that I failed at communications, I got them all together and I said, look, there's no narking, there's no backstabbing. What went on in the past is in the past. This ship is about the future. And here, here are the questions. You know, what do you like most about the ship? What do you like least? What would you change if you, the, if you were the captain? Why don't you guys interview your sailors before they ever come up to see me? And if there's something you can change and implement, do it. Don't wait for me to tell you to do it. Do it on your own. And so what happened, the officers and chiefs didn't want to be surprised. So they would interview their sailors before they ever came up to me. Uh, and so, um, and the officers and chiefs started making changes at their levels. So they started feeling in, as like leaders instead of feeling as put upon managers that are just taking orders from above. Hmm. So it was a win-win situation. It was a learning experience for everybody where everybody learned and grew into their roles as, as leaders. And you talk about in chapter five on trust, how you, you call it never pit dog against dog and your commanding officer department heads, you know, were ultimately all vying for your position. So you seem like you always had this collaborative approach and obviously learning from mistakes and, and communication wise and so on. And I'm just curious if you can, you speak to the importance of trust. Like what have you come to know about building trust in an organization and the importance of that? If there is no trust, you'll never have a high performing organization. And um, I never made the connection. I'd been in the command for two months and we left San Diego en route to the Middle East. And we were to do a major exercise with two other ships designed to increase our ability to, to defend ourselves. And the plan was for the exercise to be over the following uh, Friday afternoon at 5 p.m., at which point we would enter Pearl Harbor and spend the night in Waikiki. Well, instead of being over at 5 p.m., the exercise was unexpectedly over at 9 a.m. And we're sitting off Waikiki, steaming in circles, you know, wasting money, wasting fuel. And I remember thinking, this is stupid. Why aren't we in there? So I called the admiral who was running the exercise. And, and he said in a very gruff voice, why should I grant Benfold something I'm not granting the other two ships? And I said, well, sir, the exercise is over early. We're steaming in circles. We're wasting fuel, wasting taxpayers' money. I've got a broken piece of equipment I can only fix in port. And reason number three, I want to put my crew on the beach in Waikiki tonight. And to everybody's surprise, he said permission granted. And um, the net, so we, we put all four engines online and screamed into Pearl Harbor at full speed. And we used four times the amount of fuel getting into port than if we had waited till five. So we never saved a drop of fuel, but I wanted my crew to go on the beach and, and have fun and enjoy Waikiki because that's why they joined the, the military. Mm. And so the next day we're getting underway, we're on our continuing our transit to the Middle East. And the first sailor comes up for his interview and he says, you know, Captain, it seems to us, the crew, that you don't care if you ever get promoted again. And I said, <laughs> what are you talking about? He said, what you did for us yesterday, you went out on a limb and you had nothing to gain. You did it for us. We want you to know we got your back. And that was the day the crew started to trust me. Mm. When they realized that uh, you're not in it for your own self-interest, but you're in it for theirs. And then they repaid me a thousand times over in the form mm. of increased performance. But having your each other's back and having your boss's back is critical to um, creating trust 
And that's the foundation upon which we were able to do everything on that ship because they trusted me and the crew, you know, pressed the I believe button whenever we tried something new. And, uh, and that's how we were able to, to do great performance. And how long into your uh, command did you, you begin to notice a difference? Uh, it, it started that day. That oh, really? day was a, a game changer um, when the crew started to believe um, everything that I was saying on why we needed to change and improve and be the best and take pride in ourselves and take pride in our ship. And, um, and so that was, that was the game changer and the foundation upon which we did everything on the ship. One of the things that I really liked um, when you're really talking about leading by example, and traditionally officers would go to the front of the line and get food first, but you went to the back of the line instead of the head and um, all of your uh, commanding officers were watching you do this. And then the next day did, they did the same thing. Can you speak to leading by example and the, the benefits of that and the impact that you've seen? So I can't take credit for the concept in the Army and the Marine Corps officers eat last. And when I was with the Secretary of Defense, we visited a uh, Marine Corps base to have lunch. And the commanding general of the base goes to the end of the line. And I went up to him. I said, General, what's up with this? And the Navy officers go to the head of the line. He said, Commander, and the Marine Corps officers go to the end. That way, if we run out of food, it's the officers who go without not the people on the front line. And I started thinking, what a simple but powerful signal, uh, putting our people first. And so at my first opportunity, I go to the end of the line and all the officers were watching uh, because they had just cut to the head. And I never said another word about that incident, but at the following uh, cookout that we had, the officers went to the end of the line just ahead of me. And when they got their lunch, they stayed down on the, on the flight deck and mingled with their crew. And it goes to show you that people don't show up on our doorsteps with the skills necessary to lead. They watch you. And every leader that you deal with, they need to understand that everybody in the organization is watching how they interact with people, what their standards are. Do they tolerate things that aren't right and make no effort to fix it? And so it's an enormous responsibility to know that everybody's watching you just like you're watching your chain of command, uh, your people are watching you. And we need to be self-aware of the signals that we're sending out so that we make sure we're sending out the right signals. Hmm. Yeah, because I'm thinking it's still pretty bold on your part. Um, when, and I think when you had some VIPs come on as well, and they're kind of wondering, why are we going to the back of the line when we've traditionally been able to go to the front of the line? And you could really see that impact that rippled, you know, not only out to your crew, the, the message that it sent, but to people, uh, you know, this again, this idea of managing up. So leading by example um, is pretty powerful. And you, you say things like, you know, show me an enthusiastic leader and I'll show you an enthusiastic workforce. You know, everything comes from, from the leader. Um, yeah, I work for somebody who's pessimistic and down. <laughs> yeah, yeah who wants to do that? <laughs> right. And so, you know, it's some of its performance, but you have to be optimistic and upbeat and believe that you're going to find a way to get it done. And and people want to buy into that vision. Hmm. Um, and so that's what leaders do is to create that vision and to um, be optimistic and upbeat.
And, mm. and I used to say to my sailors, if you see a visitor walk on board this ship, walk up to them, look them in the eye, shake their hand and say, welcome to the best damn ship in the Navy. Mm. And you should have seen the impact that it would have on visitors to the ship when people looked them in the eye and say, welcome to the best damn ship. And at the time we started it, we weren't the best ship, but I wanted them to know we are in competition with nobody else and there's nobody keeping us from being the best except us. Mm. Yeah. And, and look, it was like a prophecy. It's like it came true by just, you know, every, it, it's like you planted the seed that we could be that and that you also had the, the confidence to do it. I'm curious, one of the things you can get in the way is ego. How did you get out of your own way? I mean, when I'm reading this, I'm like, wow, he sounds like an all around common sense, good guy, but how did you get out of your way? So um, I used to be, I would say I was obsessed with my next evaluation and getting promoted and, and making Admiral someday. But when I saw my predecessor getting cheered off, I said, you know what? I'm probably never going to get promoted again. Um, and what drives me from this day forward is never having to write the parents of any of my sailors telling them that their sons or daughters aren't coming home because we didn't give it our best. Mm -hmm. So I went from being uh, promotion driven to being driven by keeping my sailors safe. And along the way, they delivered the performance that got me promoted to full bird captain four years ahead of my classmates from the Naval Academy. Hmm. Amazing. How much of leading do you think is intuition? Well, you know, you have to be technically competent first in mm -hmm. your craft. And so, and, and oftentimes we put technically competent people in leadership positions who have no self-awareness as to how they're being perceived by others because they're great technicians. And sometimes they can drive good people out of the organization. And so one of the biggest mistakes I see organizations making, Navy included, is promoting somebody just because of their technical skills, but who've never had any leadership training or any self-awareness as to how they're showing up. And so um, that's critical in putting the right people in the right place. And so you have to blend your technical skills. And if you wanna lead people, you have to be intellectually curious and have the self-awareness to find out how to lead better and, mm -hmm. and how to get the most out of your people. And so that, to me, that's what intuition is. It's based on technical competence, but also self-awareness and um, knowing what drives people. Hmm. I know our time is uh, almost up. I wonder if you could speak to legacy and the importance that you say you shouldn't actually um, evaluate that to like a year later or quite a bit of amount of time afterwards. Right. So I, I, my last fitness report is the day I leave the ship. And a lot of times captains lead just until their last day. And then the next day the ship falls apart. So what they created was not something that was sustainable. It was built on their heroics. And so I've always maintained that my last fitness report should be written a year after I leave because I should be spending my two years in command of the ship preparing for the next two years. And if the person who replaces me prepares for the next two years after that, then you've got something sustainable. 
So, but also to me, legacy is what your people go on and do um, after the experience of, of working with you. And um, to get promoted to master chief in the Navy, you have a 1% chance. We had 30 chief petty officers, five are master chiefs petty officers in the Navy today. Extraordinary wow. promotion opportunity. Um, typically four ships make one admiral. That one ship has made four admirals. So um, the people are getting promoted and taking on increasing positions of responsibility at a far greater rate than your average ship. And so to me, that's my legacy mm. is do, the, do your people enjoy success after you've left. And, and I'm proud to say 20 years later, they are enjoying phenomenal success. That's amazing. Well, you've dropped a lot of nuggets here today. We've crammed a lot in, into our time together. And I, what is, for a last message, when people are listening to this, a lot of leaders will be listening to it. What is the message do you, that you want people to hear with respect to leadership? That nobody wakes up in the morning and wants to be a lousy leader. Yet, sometimes we create toxic environments because we don't have the skill set necessary to lead or the self-awareness. And so um, I would always, you know, when something happened, I'd, instead of barking orders or yelling, I go, hmm, and step back and think, how did this happen and what should I have done differently? And so realize that um, when things don't go right, uh, don't blame others, but look inward and ask yourself, did you clearly communicate the goals? Did you give people the training necessary to be successful? Did you give them the time and the resources to do a great job? But most importantly, did the process support them delivering the results you were looking for? And so that's what I would leave people with is nobody wants to deliver poor performance. And oftentimes we're the ones who could have impacted our people and get them to deliver better performance. So good. I thank you for your time. Uh, your book is called It's Your Ship, Management Techniques from the Best Damn Ship in the Navy. And I promise it's an easy and good read and you'll be taking lots of notes. I had pages of notes and I have to, it, it was more difficult to narrow it down to the, the hot topics, but I appreciate your insight uh, on all of these topics today. So thank you for your time, Mike. Dana, on a per capita basis, it sells better in Canada than it does in the United States. Yay, Canada. <laughs> So thank you for your support and, and good luck, Dana. Thanks for yes. your time. Thanks, Mike. That was such a great conversation. If you loved it too, subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please go to iTunes to rate and review this podcast. And if you want to continue the conversation, connect with Soul Sister Conversations on the Facebook and Instagram pages. You can also find me on Instagram and Facebook at Dana Lloyd Leadership, on Twitter at Coach Dana underscore Lloyd, and of course on LinkedIn. See you next week.